Greetings, listeners and learners. You are now tuned into The Complexion of Teaching and Learning, a podcast docuseries in which we traverse across time to explore the historical, political, and professional insights and experiences of educators of color. I am your host and co-learner, Brandon White, English language arts specialist for Unbounded, where we seek to serve students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. The history of educators of color is deep in the United States. The complexion of teaching and learning episodes will chronicle the experiences of Black, Latinx, Asian, and First Nation educators by first exploring the Black educator experience before, during, and right after slavery. We will follow that by exploring the experiences of Black, Latinx, Asian, and First Nation educators during the Jim Crow era. Then we will explore the impact of the Brown versus Board decision and the current professional realities that educators of color face today. In this podcast episode, we will be talking about race systemically through observing black people's preservation of culture, language, and educational values before, during, and right after chattel slavery, despite attempts to exterminate those values. I hope that the reflections and insights throughout the podcast and the discussion questions provided at the end provide fuel for meaningful, necessary, and courageous conversations that you and your colleagues can have about how teaching and learning have evolved in this racialized country. Only 2% of all teachers in America look like me. And my personal experience as a black male educator provided some answers as to why that may be the case. After receiving my degree in secondary English education, I was excited to return to the struggling school district that I graduated from and become what education researcher and author Dr. Bettina Love calls an abolitionist teacher, a teacher that pushes for rigor, relevance, and activism. However, when I began to teach in the school district, this mission was challenged by frustration, confusion, and questions. Questions like, why am I spending more time focusing on student behavior as opposed to teaching them how to fight the power? Why is this curriculum not helping me fight the power? Why am I so angry and judgmental toward the students? I thought I was one of them. I ran in halls similar to theirs, showed similar types of creativity, communication styles, and had similar ways of thinking and knowing. Knowing this, how could I bridge the knowledge foundations of my students into the aligned curricula that we were using? Why was that thinking discouraged? How was it that all of us, at all levels and roles, and to varying degrees, were seemingly both helpless and complicit with this environmental dysfunction? This is an experience that many educators face on a daily basis. Dr. Love calls this the education survival complex. I've heard my colleague Shaquilla Richardson refer to it as the spiritual and mental tax of being an educator in our inequitable systems. Throughout my years of teaching middle school English, I fought to survive it as responsibly as I could to avoid mutating into the teacher that accepts black and brown failure as the norm. How did this education survival complex come to be? What are the connections between my personal experiences as an educator of color and this odd educational apartheid? What are and were the policies, practices, attitudes, and cultural messages that over time caused and perpetuated this inequity? And what legacies can be embraced to better inform the call for higher expectations for teaching and learning? In order to begin answering these questions, we have to go back to the foundation of this country, a country that has always been multicultural, but has and continues its struggle with being inclusive, 
especially when it comes to education. In the case of the Africans who were brought to the Americas for chattel slavery, the denial of their humanity led to the attempted deletion of culture, language, and value systems, all of which are passed on through teaching and learning. Because of this, how black people would impart wisdom and education to each other would forever be impacted by the racist order of America. How did black people educate themselves prior to the racialized order of the United States? What were our processes for thinking, knowing, and sharing knowledge prior to bondage? I got a chance to sit down and talk with Dr. Malefi K. Asante, Temple University Professor of Africology and African American Studies, and he noted that the traditional responsibility of the African educator was to be the most educated about yourself, which you then use to energize connections to other ideas and purposes. Well, I think that the uh, responsibilities uh, of uh, uh, African education, which was fundamental, uh, was uh, the first thing was that you had to know yourself. And this, of course, uh, had been the uh, words and had been the uh, measures by which uh, all African philosophers and thinkers uh, judge themselves, is whether or not you had knowledge of yourself. And then, of course, you had to have knowledge of the universe in a cosmological sense. You had to know how things were connected to other things. And then you had to also have mastery of your information. This meant that you uh, had to not only acquire knowledge, but you had to be able to communicate knowledge and uh, you also had to know your students. In other words, context preceded content. It wasn't a priority over content. It didn't overshadow content. It just preceded content. The who and the how preceded much of the what, giving the what a firm foundation to grow from. The content wasn't the root. It was the fruit. When I heard Dr. Asante say these things, it brought me back to my experiences at universities, teacher preparation programs, and the professional development that I had participated in and led, which made these education concepts that he's referring to seem new and Western, when really they were old and African, and are a part of the legacies of black educators and students across America. This connection of prior forms of knowledge to the wider world that Asante refers to far predated Piaget's ever-cited constructivism. The basing your instruction on what you understand about students' lives far predated John Dewey's ever-revered theories and philosophies. And this marriage of mastering your content and how to deliver it came along way before somebody came up with the term pedagogical content knowledge. And before my education courses deemed it important to help students meet Maslow's hierarchy of needs to achieve self-actualization, Africans for hundreds of years were saying, know thyself. When I think about it, this cultural concept of know thyself certainly helped me survive systems and maintain a healthy identity as a K-12 student and as a middle school ELA teacher. While it helped, the journey remained intimidating. Despite having folks in Rochester like my parents, Pop Warner coaches, camp counselors, and some teachers that encouraged me to know myself as a black male in America, I still received the many messages within society and my education that told me, abandon thyself. Whether it was the time we read Little Black Sambo in kindergarten, or the wave brush prohibitions in middle school when I was trying to get waves in my hair, never worked. 
or the white t-shirt bands in high school for fear of gang activity, to the scoldings received when we asked questions like, why are we doing this? There were plenty of times where I was learning in spaces that discouraged how I think, learn, and communicate. For me and many other boys that looked like me, imaginative inquiry was interpreted as defiance, social learning was identified as classroom disruption, and linguistic ingenuity was labeled improper English. These dynamics became more burdensome when I became a professional educator. Everything from the respectability politics, to the Eurocentric curriculum, to the toxic dialogue I would hear in the faculty lounge. It all tested how rooted I was in my own identity, an identity which allowed me to branch out values, knowledge, passion, and purpose in the education profession, an identity that was also challenged by internalized racism, which was seeded by those abandoned thyself messages I received throughout my life. And to make matters more complicated, when I saw my students acting out because they suffered from the burdens of the same messages, it was hard not to chastise them with judgmental quips and emotionally driven consequences. To prevent this, I often paused in the moment. I asked questions of myself, but I know that there were moments where failing to do so made me an obstacle to student growth. Despite these challenges and mistakes, Maintaining know thyself as my core way of thinking allowed me to put my best intellectual and spiritual foot forward in an environment that frequently encouraged the exact opposite. How could knowing thyself, with its ways of knowing and sharing information, damage the modern racialized order in the classroom? Dr. Asante reveals the impact it had on African society. I have always said that there uh, were no societies in Africa where you had uh, children, for example, who were not educated. That education actually uh, uh, developed along um, uh, the lines of the initiations. All children went through initiation. Now, initiations could be um, could bring about uh, civil uh, uh, responsibilities in terms of where you knew how the workings of the uh, society, the um, the, the governing structures of a, of a village or a town or, or your own local commune. Uh, or they could have been martial, military, where you learn how to defend and to protect uh, the society. So, uh, but there was nobody not educated. Everybody had, uh, had to go through uh, these forms of initiation. So, so that was the basic form of education uh, of African people prior to uh, the uh, uh, Arab enslavement and the European enslavement. Many may hear that and think, really? All students were taught? It's interesting that that may be a response, yet many of us also wouldn't bat an eye when we hear legislative titles like No Child Left Behind or Every Student Succeeds Act. These legislative titles and notions were educational values and practices of African educators long before an American Congress was thought of. Asante says this was done by recognizing how relationships fuel connectivity between people, information, and purposes. He also names this concept for me. And that solar notion of education, the solar as a metaphor for the sun, which covers everything and which is everywhere, uh, was... Uh, something that was basic and still is basic wherever you find African traditions. It is the relationship that is most important, whether it's our relationship with each other or our relationship with nature, our relationship with um, 
um, uh, our families, all of that is all together. I mean, our relationship with ecology, with environment, with everything. I mean, it's all one. You can't separate it. This idea around relationship and connectivity makes me think about what the ELA standards call for when it comes to selecting texts. According to the standards, the foundational focus is supposed to be the reader and task, where your relationship with students and what you know about them is supposed to guide you to provide engaging instruction around a complex grade level text. But what happens to text engagement when that relationship isn't there, or is fractured by deficit thinking, bias, and low expectations? I can say from experience that this impacts the use of quality instructional tools and the opportunities for student fulfillment and achievement. While the reasons range from bias to professional development, grounding education in authentic relationships and context has historically been a struggle in the United States, but it was an essential practice in wider African society. This essential practice is the heritage of many educators of color. But how have they continued these practices in the United States, even during the physical and psychological violence of chattel slavery? Fortunately, I got the opportunity to speak to Dr. Heather Ann Williams, professor of Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and is the author of Self-Taught, African-American Education in Slavery and Freedom. In Self-Taught, she exposes the education rebellion that many enslaved Africans participated in while hanging on to the previous educational values and approaches of their African ancestors. Of course, she cited the ever-legendary Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, for instance, uh, who was enslaved in Maryland, talked about the fact that his owner's wife initially started teaching him to read and write. And this happened sometimes because these white Christian women thought it was important for everybody to be able to read the Bible. Well, once the owner found out that this was happening, he had, he was outraged, said to her in Douglas's presence that if you teach him to read, he will be unfit to be a slave. So um, Douglas then becomes even more eager to, to become literate. And he said he would walk around, he had a, a Webster's Blueback Speller, and it's this little blue book about the, the size of your palm that gave spelling lessons, starting with um, three-letter words and going up phonetically. And he would take that with him. He said he would also have some bread in his pocket or some kind of food that he would trade. He would give it to white boys who had some literacy skills, and they would teach him a word or teach him a sound. Um, other black men talked about doing this as boys walking around trying to get white men and white boys who maybe were hungry or didn't have a stake in upholding um, th these laws, and they would get some lessons. And it's really hard for me to imagine, you know, as somebody who whose mother was a teacher, I don't remember exactly when and how I learned to read and write, and I think most of us don't. And so it's hard to imagine how you get these little bits and pieces and you put them together and you somehow are able to decode words. And, of course, we know Frederick Douglass went on to be a prolific writer, journalist. Frederick Douglass is frequently quoted as saying, to deny education to any people is one of the greatest crimes against human nature. 
This was the crime that was systematically executed to try to keep enslaved Africans from independently thinking and collectively exercising their identities. I would see the legacies of this crime in different forms within my work as a teacher. I saw through teachers' choice not to teach kindergarten through second grade foundational literacy skills, despite what the research has proved, prohibiting the very decoding Douglas had struggled to accomplish. I saw it through teachers giving students leveled texts because, supposedly, these kids can't read. And I saw it through my own teacher-centered instruction that didn't allow students to productively struggle with complex texts. As an African-American ELA teacher, Frederick Douglass's story about the intersection of education and emancipation of self and others has always enthralled me and is one of the reasons I decided to be an educator. Once I obtained this key understanding, I was determined to share this with the students of color I would be teaching. And while there were moments of struggle and failure, this key understanding helped me battle the fear and biases of exposing my students to complex texts because I knew that exposure and effective guidance through these texts would lead them one step closer to being more informed about the world and their own extraordinary capacities. Although my resolve to expose the link between emancipation and literacy was often challenged by our educational system, it was nothing like the burden Douglas had to carry. He chose to use his acquired and mastered skills in the written and spoken word to teach the United States about the barbarity of slavery and advocate for its abolition. These actions and forms of commitment to education extend well beyond Douglas. Dr. Williams notes that this was cultural practice even during severe oppression. A lot of people talk about having to steal an education because it was forbidden, they would be punished for it, um, and this is mostly the case, right? So you do have other um, white women of the slave-owning class who taught some people to read and write. And then what would happen is that once you learn to read or write, um, you would go and teach some other people. And so there are examples of um, Elijah Mars, who said he learned from an old black man on, on the farm where he lived in Kentucky. And this man would give him lessons and would give other people lessons. Elijah Mars is one of many unsung black educators of the time period. His saga as an educator, civil war hero, and education activist is braided throughout Professor Williams' book, Self-Help, and will be referenced throughout this episode. He was amongst many black educators at the time to go through great danger to not only become literate, but to teach others as well, even if it meant teaching in a pit. Someone from North Carolina said that she remembered that on her farm, on her plantation, they had what she called a pit school, so P-I-T school. She said there was a pit that the black people had built out beyond the sort of living quarters of the white people. And she said sometimes they would hide runaway slaves in that pit. You know, somebody would go in there and they would cover it over with bushes and this is how they help people make their escape or hide out from owners if they were just trying to, sometimes they were trying to negotiate. They're not trying to make it to the North. They're trying to say, I'm not coming back on if you say, if I'm going to be whipped or whatever the negotiation was about. And so they would hide people in those pits. And she said on Sunday morning, they would have a pit school where people would go into that pit. So they would be hidden from view, and people would get lessons in that pit. So people went to all kinds of lessons. 
hit schools? Imagine the desire to teach and learn being so strong in a system so poisonously racist that you are willing to risk punishment or death by holding school in a hole in the ground. As a teacher, I had to do my best to figure out how to provide both rigorous and liberating education to my students in a challenging school environment, but that was nothing compared to these circumstances. In self-help, Professor Williams describes the racial power structure's fear of black education and black resistance. In response to rebellious acts led by literate enslaved Africans like Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey, and David Walker, slaveholding states passed anti-literacy laws for enslaved Africans. Rules like this, though, didn't stop them from making schools in pits, stealing away in the woods with each other with spelling books, meeting to educate each other under the cover of night or the cloak of dawn, or stopped free black women like Susan Woodhouse and Mary Peake from educating slaves in secret schools. In the North, however, where chattel slavery was abolished decades before it would be in the South, black people often used this as an opportunity to not only live free lives, but to create safe spaces where they could learn and teach freely. There were black educator pioneers like Katie Ferguson, Prince Hall, Daniel Coker, and Alexander Lucius Twilight that built institutions where free black people could not only receive comprehensive education, but also receive shelter and community support. But even in the North, these pioneers had to navigate obstacles and violent forms of racism. The northern parts of the United States had a racialized order that was less obvious than the South's, but still toxic nonetheless. There's one instance in 1832 where Quakers and black abolitionists created a boarding school for African-American girls in Connecticut, but angry white residents decided to vandalize it and set the occupied school on fire. These, amongst the many other dynamics, provide the backdrop for a nation that was heading towards a civil war. Abolitionists and enslaved Africans took the opportunity to use the war as a means of fighting for the emancipation of enslaved people. And according to Dr. Williams, education still played a pivotal role. During the Civil War, multiple modes of gathering information became important. Literacy, overhearing conversations among white people, uh, but being able to read the newspaper, trying to figure out the movements of Union troops. Because once um, Union troops came close by, Black people were escaping, and so literacy became, I think, part, one of the tools that they used during the Civil War to seek freedom. Formerly enslaved Africans would also use this internal conflict to fight for intellectual and educational emancipation. Elijah Mars, who we previously mentioned, was among many African Americans that would join the Union Army while still advocating for the education of his people. During their dangerous and segregated service in the Union, he and other Black Union soldiers still took time to learn and teach each other to read and write, carrying their spellers and books in their Union Army bags. They would do this with the present and future in mind. According to Professor Williams' self-taught, several regiments gave their money and labor to build schools that would educate larger African-American communities. Again, we see the exercise of culture and values that a racist system tried its hardest to eradicate. When I learn about stories like this, I keep thinking about how education grounded in an ethical why and an authentic how is the most powerful education you can receive. During my first year or two of teaching, I had a very similar why as Mars and many other educator ancestors of mine. 
to help disenfranchised students become independent, critical thinkers that know themselves, love themselves, navigate, and stand against America's racial order. The more I think about it, the why had always been consistent, but the how always seemed difficult to navigate. How do I better practice the forgotten ways of engaging students that look like me? How do I make sure internalized racism doesn't interrupt that process? How do teachers who don't look like the students engage with students in an authentic and identity-affirming way? And how does the racism in school and outside school complicate things? One thing is for sure. I could have used Mars's resilience. The resilience of these soldiers was one of the many factors that allowed for the Union to win. And due to the maneuverings of many politicians and abolitionists, an end to the war was going to lead to the end of chattel slavery in America. Newly freed Africans would use this opportunity to continue fighting for human rights, one of them being the right to retain their specific education pathways, systems, and values. Professor Williams elaborates on how that unfolded communally and systemically. After the Civil War is where you see Black people's drive for education impacting a much broader realm. So now the focus is not just on individuals becoming literate, but on a black population becoming literate and also making um, schooling, education, public education possible for all people in a state. Because during most of the 19th century, before the Civil War, most southern states did not have public education systems. North Carolina had a public education system. Most other states um, owners, wealthy planters, um, provided private schooling for their children. They brought tutors from the north to the plantation and set up, like, they would have school buildings that were for their children. They sent them north to schools like the University of Pennsylvania, Princeton, or they sent them abroad. And so, but they didn't want to pay taxes. To, to educate other white people's children. So black people are not going to go to school at all. That's against the law. But even for other white people, they did not want to support an educational system. And so it's after slavery ended and black people and some white Republicans from the North, and remember at this time the Republican Party was the party that opposed slavery. These are the abolitionists. And um, so these white Republicans and, and black people from the North and the South created schools, but they also advocated once they were in power, well, even before they got any power in these states, they were advocating for public education systems. And then some of them during the period called Congressional Reconstruction, some of them were elected to state houses, so they became state senators and so on, and some also at the federal level. And it's while those people were in power in, in southern states that you get public education legislation passed and funded. And um, so then that made schooling possible for not just black people, but also for white people, because most white people had only had maybe a few months of schooling, um, but had not had consistent schooling. And so 
Black people push for education for themselves and their children really resulted in a broadening of educational opportunities for all people in these southern states. And they, the black people, for the most part, pushed for public schools. They did not argue in favor of integrated schools. There were a few people who wanted that, but strategically, people knew that that was not going to happen. And so you have segregated schools. Um, and, of course, you know, with the coming of Jim Crow segregation, it, the law provided that those schools had to be segregated. And going forward, you see far more expenditures, tax um, expenditures on the white schools than on the black schools, even though black people were also paying taxes. And so B. Du Bois did a study in 1903, and he said black people are being taxed twice. So they're paying a tax that goes to the state that funds schools for black people and white people. And then they have to give out of their pockets again to help to, to fix the buildings, to buy books and so forth, um, to maintain the schools in their communities. I was totally unaware of how the advocacy for black education also led to the beginning of more equitable circumstances for underserved whites. However, this didn't come without the cost of still having bodies and resources segregated within the budding of this new system. This would not be the last time in our country's history that black education advocacy would lead to double-edged benefits for people of color and pure benefits for whites. Despite the benefits being bittersweet, freed people of African descent went on a crusade to provide education for themselves. John W. Alvord, the general superintendent of schools for the Freedmen's Bureau, noted that, quote, they, black people, often say we want to show how much we can do ourselves if you will only give us a chance, end quote. After the Civil War, freed people, including Mars and his community, were building schools throughout the South with their own community funding and no government assistance. These realities are certainly different from the these parents don't care, these kids don't care, their community doesn't care rhetoric that I would frequently hear and try not to internalize myself as an educator. Granted, there are communities where some parents and children are disconnected from schools, but is it because they don't care? How could that be true when there is a history of black communities advocating for learning and teaching the moment slavery was over? The dynamics of community-led and community-funded education initiatives would be challenged forever as missionaries from the North were requested by freed people to help establish schools. Dr. Williams explains. Right after the war, you see black people, even during the war in Virginia, for instance, where the unions had taken over, you see black people forming schools. And sometimes it's in their houses, sometimes it's in their churches. And then um, what happened is that they started um, requesting that white missionaries come from the north or missionaries come from the north. Because the people who had managed to acquire some literacy during slavery were the first teachers. And so in the letters that went north from, from them, you see them saying, our teacher has given the students all he has, and we need somebody who's been more formally trained. And so the first people to set up schools for black people were black people. And then you get missionaries from the American Missionary Association. That's the biggest one, but there were several missionary organizations 
coming. And they sent ministers and they sent teachers. And I think it's just interesting to know that black people in many of these communities were really um, set on being self-determining. They had been under the thumb of white people for a very long time, and many of them wanted to shape their own communities and to provide what they could. And so you see battles, especially between white ministers and black ministers, over who's going to control this educational project. And so you've got a cadre of black teachers but they're not formally trained. They bring in white teachers to, to help teach just children and the adults in the community who wanted to learn. As I am hearing this, I can't help but think about this being an age-old balancing act that black people have had to master throughout their experience in America. Practicing their collectivism while carefully selecting allies, but being cautious about those allies diluting or misappropriating their self-determination in the process. According to Dr. Williams, John Alvord would lead a way to approach this delicate circumstance. John Alvord was from the Freedmen's Bureau, and he was doing the education angle of the Freedmen's Bureau. And he's writing letters from all over the South, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina. And he's really advocating for formal training of black teachers. He said, these are the people who are really going to teach in black communities, and we need to, to train them. And so then you see the missionary organizations um, set, setting up schools. And so uh, many of the, the schools that became colleges started as normal schools, which is where teachers were trained. And so they would be training teachers and ministers. And the idea was that black people would have to be self-sufficient and that they were the ones who would be going into the nooks and crannies of black communities, many of which were still on plantations. Um, and so you have to create a, a body of trained teachers. And you see teachers then, so, so the, the young people would go to these schools and then go back home and start teaching in the summer. They call them field schools. They would go out to the fields. They would go to wherever the black community was and start to teach. So as soon, again, following that pattern that we had seen during slavery, as soon as you learn something, you go back and you start to teach it. And so that's how those schools came about, you know, schools like Fisk and um, Hampton, Howard, um, Tugaloo. It's these young people going off with some become of literacy. They had managed to get some teaching either from black people or from the missionary teachers, and then they go off to become better educated, to go back and teach and become ministers and do whatever else that community needed. This systematic method of training and producing teachers of color through normal schools and the establishment of what are now called historically black colleges and universities would have long-lasting impacts on blacks in education. Declared as a move towards equity at the time, it created a deployable and academically trained teaching force for the recently freed and underserved black people as they would move into the Jim Crow period. This would prove to be an extremely valuable approach as it would create many black teacher leaders. 
but was it without systemic caveats and drawbacks? The more time I spent in this profession, the more I understood that in order to become a change agent for educational equity, I had to know three things. One, I had to know that we are part of an educational system that holds policies and practices that are historically and inherently racist. Two, I had to know that being in the system means that I am a participant in it and are therefore accountable for my contributions. And most importantly, three, using systemic awareness coupled with a strong knowledge of self, students, content, and instruction can allow educators to not be complicit participants in this system, but change agents from within it. As we go through this history, we will see that this is not easy work, but we will also see how this work is not only possible, but necessary. During our next episode, we will be exploring the saga of educators of color during the Jim Crow era and the events leading to the landmark Brown vs. Board court decision. In between now and the next episode, we invite you to open up your communities to discuss the history and its connections to our perceptions of education in America. How does this history make us rethink our current practices as educators? Do we recognize any systemic or cultural patterns during our time period that behave similarly to the time period we just explored? And how does this history make us rethink our interactions with students of color? Reflection and discussion about our past and present can produce the most fruitful future. I would like to thank Drs. Malefi Asante and Heather Andrea Williams for sharing their time, wisdom, and embracing their cultural inheritance of having the duty to share knowledge holistically, intergenerationally, and communally. Until the next episode, I wish you all fair learning journeys, peace, and progress. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by Unbounded where we seek to serve teachers and students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. For more about our work, please visit unbounded.org or standardsinstitutes.org. If you want to expand your content knowledge on the topic we've just explored, we strongly recommend diving into these texts. Self-Taught, African American Education and Freedom by Heather Andrea Williams. Schooling Citizens, The Struggle for African-American Education in Antebellum America by Hilary J. Moss, and The Egyptian Philosophers, Ancient African Voices from Imhotep to Akhenaten by Malefi Asante. We'll see you next time on the next episode of The Complexion of Teaching and Learning.